The village is going to be probably like others you've seen, you know, kind of a nice walkable village. We'll have a base lodge. It's right at Snowshed Pond. The group we have in now, they understand that they need to make sure the skier experience is enhanced and not degraded. When you had non-skiers developing it, all they care about is how much they can sell the condo for, not how does it integrate with the rest of the resort. Welcome to the storm. host, Stuart Winchester, rolling into fall today with the king of New England skiing, Killington, Vermont. Before we see what's going on at the Beast, I have a favor to ask. Please visit stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. There is an article there that accompanies this and every podcast episode that provides a ton of additional context on our conversation including maps, charts, historical tidbits, and analysis of what makes this place and each place I feature special. If you're new here, welcome. I'm fired up to have you, but I want you to understand this. The podcast is just a small part of the storm. The heart of this whole operation is the Storm Skiing Newsletter, where I am breaking down the world of lift surf skiing with a minimum of 100 articles every single year and you will get them all delivered straight to your inbox when you subscribe at stormskiing.com stop getting your ski news from facebook get it from the storm skiing newsletter instead you can also follow the storm on twitter instagram or threads at storm ski journal before we get to killington a quick word from my sponsor profile search international Coming off a second consecutive season of record attendance, the ski industry has never been more competitive, and neither has the war for the best talent. How will you ensure that your organization is positioned to compete with the best and deliver results to your customers and stakeholders? Profile Search International is the only executive search and recruitment firm in the world that is 100% focused on the ski industry. They've been placing hundreds of leaders in roles that truly drive results at the best and most progressive ski areas for more than 30 years. Profile Search International uses their intimate understanding of skiing and related industries and of the candidates worldwide to align talent with your needs and goals. With offices in the US and Canada, they find and negotiate with the right leaders for your team. Reach out to them directly at ProfileSearch.com or contact them by email or phone or send me a note and I will forward it on to the amped up and ready to charge team at ProfileSearch International. That's ProfileSearch.com. Episode 143, Mike Salamano, President and General Manager of Killington and Pico, Vermont. New England skiers are spoiled by choice. 100 ski areas in a six-state region that's roughly half the size of New Mexico. Epic Pass holders can choose between seven ski areas in Vermont and New Hampshire. Icon Pass holders also have seven options and get to ski up in Maine. Skiers clutching an Indy Pass can hit 14 different ski areas across New England in a single winter and get discounts at seven more. These are not small mountains. 
17 New England ski areas are right at or over 2,000 vertical feet. So how do you sort through all that? Well, you can't go wrong if you head straight to the top. And Killington is the biggest ski area in New England by just about any measure. A 3,000 foot vertical drop, more than 1,500 acres of terrain, six mountains, five distinct base areas, and the longest season in the East, year after year, often opening in October and not shutting the lifts off until June. This is why Killington is the busiest mountain in the East, and it's where you'll often see achingly good skiers swarming the bumps, parks, and glades. Killington just straight up delivers an outstanding product, but there is one thing Killington doesn't have, a sense of place outside of the mountain itself. Killington Road, while lined with legendary spots like the Wobbly Barn, is mostly a five-mile sprawl up from Route 4. You mostly have to get around by car. Killington, for all the frantic energy pouring off the hill, lacks the energy outside of it, the kind you'll find in a great ski town like Aspen or Telluride or Park City. But that could be on the cusp of changing. This summer, Killington voters approved, at long last, a plan to build a village with up to 2,000 beds in the area between Snowshed and Ramshead, which right now is mostly a wasteland of parking lots. If it succeeds, and if Vermont gets a true ski-in, ski-out pedestrian village of the sort that is conspicuously absent in the region, it could act as a proof of concept that could dramatically transform New England skiing. One of the key players who has been tirelessly moving this whole project forward for several years, and who is going to make sure that the village seamlessly ties into the ski resort, is my guest today. He's going to lay all this out for us, and so much more about Killington and Sister Resort Pico, which might be the most underrated ski area in New England. Let's go. My guest today has been President and General Manager of Killington Resort and Pico Mountain since 2012. With 1,509 acres served by 21 lifts on a 3,050-foot vertical drop, Killington is the largest ski area in eastern North America. Pico sits on a nearly 2,000-foot vertical drop with seven lifts serving 468 skiable acres. He has worked at Killington since joining as Vice President of Finance in 2002. Mike Salamano is my guest. Mike, welcome back to the storm. I am always fired up to talk Vermont skiing, and especially when the subject is the beast. How are you doing today, Mike? How's your summer going? I'm doing great. Yeah, things are going well. Getting ready for winter. So here we are in September, and as always with Killington, it seems like the season just ended, and you made it to June again this year. And I want to start with a little historical context here, Mike. When you took over as president in 2012, Killington didn't have a June close until 2017. Since then, the mountain has made it to June in four of the last six seasons, excluding the COVID year in 2020, and the last two years in a row, closing closing June 4th of 2022 and June 1st this year, as I mentioned. Is there something that you're doing differently? Is the team really getting this locked in? Is it just weather luck? What's What explains all these June closings lately? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm not sure, to be honest, I know the exact answer to that. You know, when I took over, I think, you know, we we went back to, you know, going back to some of the things that we always say made Killington great, which was our opening early and closing late. And 
mainly focusing on closing late. We were trying in those other years, just other things happened. I think a lot, a couple of those years we made it to Memorial Day, so maybe not all the way to June. But, you know, I think in terms of this year, we always say it depends what April and May weather is, right? That's the big one. But, you know, I say this year we also, I think maybe we're a little more efficient. We did get some pre-noth technology where you can see how much snow is under the cat. And, you know, I'm not saying that particularly did it, but, you know, anytime you can not move snow or move snow to a certain spot and not have to say groom the whole trail or that type of thing, you know, you do better with preservation. So, you know, I think the team's just more focused on it. And uh, yeah. And also, as I say, this year was probably the one that felt like we wouldn't make it. Right. Um, And then all of a sudden we did. So you just never really know. No, I was really impressed because we did not necessarily have a great season in the Northeast. We did have a good March, but then had some melt-offs after that. I mean, what this all revolves around, for listeners who may not be familiar, is this superstar glacier, as you call it. I don't know if you call it that or if that's just something that was born on social media and that's just what skiers have started calling it. But talk a little bit about the process of building that, air quotes, glacier and how your approach to that may have changed over the years. Yeah, the other thing I didn't mention, which is probably the bigger reason is, you know, we've been making it to late May, but, you know, I think World Cup, you know, we've done now for all during that period you're talking. And, you know, I think that's had a big impact because, you know, we're putting a lot of snow, we're really compacting it down, sometimes uh, watering it to freeze it over. And so I think that's helped keep the base down. But yeah, generally the model now that we do World Cup is, you know, we kind of open the mountain up in Northridge, which you take the gondola to, and then uh, we build some stairs up there where you can ski early season. And then since World Cups happen, we start making snow typically as early as we can, usually end of October on Superstar, mostly just on the top of the trail, making piles, not to ski, just to accumulate snow, just because we know there's a short window before the race on Thanksgiving. So, you know, that's the goal generally to try to get five, six feet of snow in a perfect world on that, pack it down to you know, a foot or two, you know, that's the goal kind of early season there. I know you brought back the beast branding, Mike, is Superstar Glacier part of that branding or is that just something that came out of the ether? I think it's all intertwined, right? Well, we, you know, I think I've told you before, people used to call it the beast of the East and, you know, we're under ASC's control. They kind of decided everyone should have a family friendly mountain and that wasn't very family friendly. So we stopped using it. Right. And, we kind of went full circle and we've actually done some market studies on it. And what we found is for the people that are predisposed to come to Killington, uh, it it's actually a positive. So the people who find it to be not very friendly or a little bit um, aggressive, maybe isn't really our skier. You know, it, it's probably more that beginner low level type of skier. And and so we found that 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 model from just a pure branding standpoint works for us. What about the Superstar Glacier gloss? Is that something you came up with or is that something that the skiers just came up with? You know, I don't remember the origin of that. Like a lot of things, sort of like the Beast of the East, I'm yeah. not sure that the resort created it. I think the customer created it and we said, hey, that it does sound pretty cool. So, you know, we put a sign up there, I think, about the glacier at different times of the year talking about it. And, you know, typically the model is we, as I said, we make snow for, for World Cup. And then, you know, we try to expand around the mountain. And then typically in January, when we start getting some really cold temps, we'll sometimes just fire up the guns from then all the way through March on that trail. Anytime 
we're kind of not needing to expand somewhere else. I'd say, so if we had like excess capacity, excess water, or uh, we would kind of dump it on there, especially when it's really cold, you get those nights where it's five, 10 degrees mm-hmm. and we just let it run sometimes for a couple of days. Yeah. You've mentioned the world cup a couple of times, Mike, and that's become a really great new England tradition there at Killington. Last year, I mean, we had a really warm November and you were still looking at grass through most of November, finally opened November 17th and were able to pull that off. I mean, what did it take? How was your team able to make that happen with the kind of November that we had last year? Yeah, it's always comes down to the wire, but last year was really scary. But, you know, I think it gave us some confidence that we were able to pull it off all the years before. You know, we haven't had, we've only had one race canceled and that was really because we actually had too much snow during the day. So Mm. we've been able to make enough snow for the race. And last year we were only a week out and as you said, all grass, but, you know, we saw some cold temps coming in, you know, we've done all sorts of different modifications to make sure we can get max capacity on that trail. Uh, We get upwards of 150 guns on that one trail, which is Mm -hmm. pretty remarkable. That's more than we can run at Pico on the whole, at the whole mountain. That's um, unbelievable. So we saw uh, at the same time as we've been seeing all these June closings, we haven't had an October opening since 2018 after having six October openings in eight years between 2011 and 2018. Obviously, this has been a weird time in 2020. You push the opening because of capacity. But is that just bad luck on the front end, just bad weather luck there? Is there something else going on? No, I think it's a combination of maybe bad luck and a little bit of a strategic change that, you know, it costs so much to get open in early. You know, we had a couple of years we're getting open in middle of October and it's mechanically challenging and costly. And so we're still working on it, but we're not going to go crazy probably to get open, especially early October if we don't think we can keep it. Right. It doesn't make a ton of sense mm-hmm. to make snow early season, really expensive snow if you're if you're going to just lose it in a couple of days. So we've probably gotten, I would say, a little more cautious there. We're still committed to the longest season, but probably more focused on on staying longer at the end. than we've had a couple of years where we've made snow in mid-October and then we've closed in the end of October, which doesn't make a ton of sense either. You're really just throwing money out the window. Yeah, there's a there's a certain energy that that brings to Killington and having those long seasons. I mean, how would you compare that the early like I was there, I, I couldn't make it up last year, but the year before the first day the K1 was open. And it, it's just this this raw energy of everyone being so excited to be back out there. And then spring is kind of a different thing. It's more of a party. It's warmer. I mean, how would you compare those two times and how they help define the resort? Yeah, I think they're similar but different, right? I think sometimes the early, usually we open, it's we do a, a just for pass holders, so it's more of a local kind of scene. And, uh, you know, we started that when we got back into opening early, and that's been well, really well received. You know, end of the season, we get a lot of people that are, you know, coming from their home mountain and buy a spring pass or just coming at the end of the season. So it's a lot of the same group, and there's some different, but it definitely has a different feel right? The spring is a big party. It's kind of a longer period. And then the first couple of weeks, we're usually the first one or two weeks where we're the only place open. So that's just a whole different feel as well. People getting excited for winter. Does it feel like, well, you probably have the numbers. It felt like before the social media era, if I would show up at a ski area in May, there would be me and 10 other people there. But now with all the ways that we have to communicate and market these things and the stoke that people get around it, it seems like if I come in May, it, it feels sometimes like a like a peak winter Saturday. 
have you seen more attendance in these late season periods over the past few years? Because it certainly seems like the hype is bigger. I think I think there's just a lot of hype. I'm not sure the numbers bear that out. Mm, what we okay. find is if you get a nice Saturday, it's <laughs> packed. And if you get a rainy Saturday, it's not, right? Okay. And that's sort of part of the reason why we've moved to the Friday through Sunday plan. Because those midweek days, even if it's a nice day, just not getting many people in late May coming. All right. Well, it's been a busy summer up there, Mike, particularly at Pico. Lots going on. 25 new high efficiency HKD guns. Talk a little bit about this project you're doing at Pico this summer on snowmaking and how that complements the work that you've really been doing over the past several years over there. Yeah, I mean, we've been we've had a multi-year plan at Pico, and it, you know it's taking some time to come to fruition. The problem we've had at Pico, which is a lot different than at Killington, is we would run out of water. Right, mm-hmm. a lot of ski resorts have this problem. We have two ponds there, but you know, mostly getting fed by streams, and there's a lot of restrictions on what you can take out of streams. And anyway, so we worked on a plan. So at, to step back at Killington, we have a five-mile pipeline from a reservoir that we, we pay to actually draw out of. And yeah. we put that in now tw- over 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so that's given us almost unlimited water. We pump, pump it up into some of our different ponds and pump it around the mountain. And then we got permitted a plan to pump that over to Pico. So what we do is we go up over the Ramshead side and we put a, you know, spend about over a million dollars on a pipeline up over to Ramshead and then back down into their pond. And so that was really the first thing we needed to do because adding capacity or other things, pumping that over at Pico didn't matter when many times it would be cold out and our ponds would be empty. Mm-hmm. And people are like, what are you idiots? You're not making <laughs> snow. And it's like, we have no water, but you know, right. then they'd see us making snow at Killington and say, uh-huh. oh, you don't really care about Pico. Right. And you know, that was just not how it worked. It's just the mechanics. So now what we do is, I think last year we probably pumped water over and filled the ponds maybe six, seven times. Wow. So that's pretty substantial. Those are yeah. all times we would have been empty at Pico. And so what we generally do is we wait for periods where we're not making too much snow on this side because we need to use some pumping capacity to move it over to Pico. But anyway, so that's been really successful. The next phase was increasing pumping capacity uh, we built a new pump house and it's pretty much almost done, completely rebuilt that, spent, you know, over a million dollars on that project. So, you know, we're putting a substantial amount of money into into Pico. You know, it's taking some time to to really show it in results on the mountain. We're also built, you know, did a lot of pipeline work and we've been adding more low energy guns and just a whole strategy that I think people starting this year will start to see some of those rewards. I mean, that's a lot, Mike. And and looking at Killington and Pico on the map, they're not that far apart until you think about something like running a pipe over that piece of land. Talk about from an engineering point of view. I mean, how challenging has this project been? Yeah, it was actually the, the biggest challenge wasn't probably the engineering of pushing water over that mountain. I think our team you know, with some good engineers can figure that out. What actually was more complicated is the permitting process because oh. in Vermont, you know, we were effectively moving water from one watershed to another. And that mm. usually causes a lot of different issues. But, you know, I think our team's been does a really great job working with the state and kind of showing why we're doing things. And, you know, we really try to be responsible on our lands and, and that type of thing. And so, you know, we ended up getting that that through. But I think that was probably the harder part of why that was a challenging project. 
So what's the goal here, Mike? Are you going for 100% snowmaking on Pico? Or are you just trying to modernize the mountain? What, where would you like to get and how far along are you in that process with Pico's snowmaking system? Yeah, I mean, 100% snowmaking in Pico is, would be a long way off. We're not that <laughs> right. close to that. So, you know, it's a balance. You know, we always have debates about that. I mean, I think the goal is to modernize it and you know, we were realizing, you know, we had put a whole plan together and talked through with powder of saying, okay, you know, years where we have tough snowmaking and don't have a lot of trails, obviously that's a tough business model. So, you know, I think before we could deal with anything else to fix at Pico, whether it's lifts or other things, we're like, we need snowmaking to work. So, you know, I think that the key is to get the main trails with legitimate snowmaking that you can turn on and, you know, not blow holes in and all that type of stuff. And, and when, so, you know, I guess to say it a different way is when you have a cold snap, nowadays you really need to convert as much water to snow as you can. Right. Mm -hmm. I think maybe in the old days when you had more cold air, cold weather, you could just kind of do what you needed to. And as you see in some of the like Southern resorts, they're really trying to convert snow very quickly because they don't get a lot of windows. And so I think Pico's, Pico falls into that category a little bit that when we need to make sure we can convert to snow as quick as possible. So that's the main goal right now. We'll see where we go in the future, but you know, it's kind of getting the core trails back. And I think one of the beauty of Pico, if you've skied there, is we have a lot of natural trails that I'm not sure we'd ever put snowmaking on. There are just some really great kind of woods bump type trails that we probably, you know, we'll do the main trail, but then the two around it, we might not say like in Bronco area or something like out. So did you say you haven't really seen the results necessarily yet? I mean, are you seeing that you're able to open the mountain earlier, open top to bottom earlier? Is, is there better consistent snow quality throughout the year? What have you seen so far from all these investments you've made at Pico? Yeah, I guess what I was trying to reference is when you spend all that money to bring water over, the average person sees that you're making snow on the same trails and somewhat doesn't notice, might not mm. notice as big a difference, right? You know, I always say in, in the East and in Vermont, a lot of times it depends how much rain you get in between right. storms, right? Yeah. As much as how much, people love to talk about how much natural snow, like, you know, snowbird gets, right? But mm -hmm. for us, we'd be better off just getting cold temps with no rain all winter long and no natural snow. And right. we'd be fine. At, bo at both resorts, we'd be yeah. fine. We, you know, honestly, it's usually the rain warm-ups that kind of kill us. So right. I think people are seeing it. I'm just, my only point is, you know, until we get the pumping that we're going to have this year and all the pieces come together, that's when I think they'll be able to see a more consistent product. Are the Pico faithful noticing? I think so. Yeah. Our season pass sales have been doing well. Yeah. I think overall, I think they're pretty happy. Yeah, last time we spoke in 2019, when you were on the podcast, you said you'd like to get some more people over at Pico. Are you seeing people start to shift over there or, or is it still a struggle to get them out of the beast? Yeah, I mean, we'd like to do both, right? We like to keep enough people here. And I mean, Pico has been doing pretty well. I mean, we're not hitting records, but I say we're pretty happy with where it's at. So we're not really trying to push some group to Pico or others to here. It's, you know, we know they're different mountains. We like to keep their identities different. And, um, you know, I think it's just a different skier most of the time. Obviously, you know, Killington Pass holders can go over there. I think a lot of them go over on days like Thursday when, you know, we've been closed for two days of Pico and that type of stuff. But um, <laughs> and some powder came in on Wednesday, right? Yeah. That's what they're hoping for. <laughs> 
So you also are replacing the haul rope on Summit Express over at Pico this summer. Any mechanical upgrades? Is it just a haul rope replacement? Uh, that one's just a mechanical upgrade. But, you know, I think the question always at Pico is, you know, what's next? You yeah. know, are you putting in new lifts and this and that? And, you know, I, I think from a high level standpoint, small ski resorts are very hard to run. Right. Mm-hmm. There's if you look around, Pico's larger than many of the other small ones, but they're they're tough where the resort like if you you know, we have two detached lifts over there. Right. They're older, but we have two detachable lifts. You know, Pico's probably not even worth maybe what one detachable lift is on its own. Oh, wow. So when you think of, you know, maybe, maybe it is. But, I mean, over the years, historically, you can see the problem that small resorts have when one lift can cost more than the actual resort, right? I mean, yeah. a, a detachable lift, you know, if we're going to put in a lift on Superstar or Ram's Head or something, that's a $10, $11 million lift. And a lot of these small resorts are not, you know, sometimes they're not even worth that. So, you know, you got to be able to justify that. So I think for us, though, you know, even though we have some older lifts, we're really focused on maintaining the lift. And I think it's like an old house, right? You don't not have to knock the house down in, in some historic areas to have put new windows in or a new boiler, a new roof. It's effectively a brand new house, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, new insulation. I mean, we, that's what we've been doing with a lot of our older lifts. And specifically at Pico, that's pretty much the plan. So you mentioned that Pico is, like many small ski areas, kind of difficult to justify the ROI sometimes. So if you look at Powder's portfolio, they have the four big ones. They have Killington, Copper, Snowbird, and Bachelor. And then they have a bunch of little ones like Boreal and, and Pico. Should skiers look at these investments that Powder is making in Pico as the fact that Powder is committed to Pico to keeping the ski area open, even if they're not putting in a new summit lift, they they do want to keep the ski area in, in good shape and maintain it and and do intend to keep it open for the long term. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't think that, you know, it would make no sense to spend that amount of money on snowmaking. You know, we spend a million bucks, over, I think, each year over the last couple of years. So, you know, that's a lot of money that we could be using over here, right? We're trying to balance that. And so, no, there's definitely a commitment they know. I mean, as you said in your opening, it's it's 50 trails, 2,000 vertical with two high-speed lifts. It's a, it's a legitimate small ski resort, right? I mean, in some parts of the country and you know, it's actually would can be considered big, right? It's yeah. got some really great skiing and, and that it's a little hard when it's next door to Killington. But, right. you know, I think from that standpoint, they understand. And I think we've been able to prove out that, you know what, if we're more consistent with our terrain, meaning we have enough trails open, meaning we're, we, a rain event comes and we, it doesn't wipe out half our trail count. You know, that's what happens when you're trying to run a resort in the East that, you know, even midwinter that a lot of your trails are open because of natural, you get a really pounding rain and you lose half your trails. And that's pretty tough or, you know, you can lose even more than that. And that, that just kills you. So that's really what we're trying to protect against that, you know, our core main trails at Pico, say our top 20 are really bulletproof and they're always going to have snowmaking on them. We're going to be in good shape. You know, it's funny. If you even moved Pico, over into New Hampshire, it would be a major ski area, right? Because it's the size of Cannon or the size of Waterville Valley. How much do you guys talk about that? Like, this is a great mountain, but everyone just drives right by it because it's right next to Killington. But if you put it literally anywhere else, it would be considered a major New England mountain. I mean, how frustrating is that for you? How often do you do you talk about that internally? 
I mean, I think we've talked about it at times more com- when we're trying to compete with other, you know, regional resorts and saying, you know what, you compare it to, you know, some of the other smaller resorts in, in New York or New Hampshire, as you're talking, or just a lot of those. And people tend not to know because they either think if they're coming here, they might as well go to Killington, right? So I think for us, once we can get more stability in our trail count through this snowmaking project, I think then when you get natural snow on top of it, it's hard to beat it. If you're going to go to, you know, one of these smaller mountains, you typically don't get the vertical in the trail. Like we have a lot of steep trails at Pico, mm-hmm. right? Which mm-hmm. sometimes on the smaller mountains, they tend not to have that, right? Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons um, they're relatively small. But I mean, that's one of the, I think a differentiator is the vertical drop there is, is pretty substantial. Yeah, it's great. For a while, as you mentioned, Pico's closed on Tuesday, Wednesday. For a while, I believe you're doing private mountain rentals on those days. Do you still do those at Pico? Yeah, we do. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, years ago when we looked at the model, we just said we don't really have that many people midweek. Same at Killington, honestly. A lot of excess capacity. We're trying to look at how to make Pico more viable. And so we came out with changing that. And I think over time, most people have thought it, it makes a lot of sense, right? It's we're trying to be smart with our money, right? I don't want to waste yeah. money. Then, if you have money left at the end of the year, you can invest in capital. So that's kind of been the model. And you know, last couple of years we've done really well renting the whole resort. You know, so that helps it financially. I think it's like anything, right? Then you can show that the the models viable as Pico's doing better because we're doing say private rentals on those days. It makes the case for more capital upgrades easier. So it, that's kind of the way it works. Very similar to what we did it with our mountain bike program on the Killington side. And what do they get if they do a private mountain rental? Do they get the two high-speed lifts? Do they get all the lifts? Do they just get one of the high speeds? What's the basic terrain layout? Or does it kind of depend on how much they want to pay? No, the standard model is they get both high-speed lifts, which covers most of the trails. So, um, you know, and they can get some food and beverage if they want. But that's generally the model. You know, it's been very well received. I think most of the groups will... There's some company outings and they'll have two to 300 people there maybe. And, you know, on a mountain that size, it's, you're basically skiing by yourself. Oh yeah. No, that's, that's fantastic. Do you have capacity still for 23, 24 season? Yeah, we've been renting most of the, um, the ones that are available. I don't think we start renting it till it's pretty, till January. So, you know, we might have one left, one or two left, Mm -hmm. but most of the groups, once they do it once, they keep coming back because they realize it's, it's hard to beat it for for the price of what you could do to just go get a hotel somewhere for your group to do like some type of meeting. Uh, it's a pretty great deal. All right, Mike, the other upgrade I wanted to ask you about is over at Killington. And, and I realize this isn't new this year, but it, it, it was a one of these projects that got stalled by COVID. And I can't imagine the logistical nightmare you're working around, but the K1 Lodge, I mean, talk about this new lodge and how nice that was to have last year. Yeah, it's been really well received. I think the old building, some people will remember, you know, is like a lot of ski resorts. It was just added on over many years. And, um, you know, then we redid the Peak Lodge at the top of the gondola. And that was really well received. You know, really tried to upscale the food uh, a little better than kind of the kind of crappy burger and fries that most resorts sell. And so we realized when we did the Peak that people really did want nicer lodges. So we worked on K1 and we added about 50% capacity in terms of seating. That's always been one of the challenges. It's, you know, one of the more popular spots on the mountain. Everybody wants to be there. And uh, on busy days, we just couldn't handle the volume. So, yeah, we started this before COVID and um, worked on it and then uh, 
had to take a little bit of a break. So yeah, it's been kind of an adventure, but you know, the final product's been great. And yeah, I think overall, I think most people are, you know, really happy. I mean, it's, you know, funny thing is we added 50% capacity and we still had heart, we had problems finding seats for people just because <laughs> everybody wanted to go there. And, uh, you know, it's a good problem to have. Did that ease things up at some of your other lodges where maybe folks could find a seat where they couldn't before? Yeah, I mean, the biggest challenge we have is that at the peak, uh, you know, we only have about 250 seats and mm-hmm. that's always a challenge, people wanting to go up there. So the fact that K1, we were hoping would take some pressure off the peak, it was still busy up there, probably took more uh, from all the other lodges, I would say, right? So people are still wanting to go to the peak in K1. They like this style of big glasses and, you know, big glass windows and looking out at the mountains. And, you know, obviously I think as we build things in the future, that that's makes a lot of sense, right? People are here because they want to enjoy the beauty. And so I think big windows and that type of thing is, is really, really nice. All right, Mike, I want to step out of Killington for a moment here. You know, last time I had you on the podcast, it was actually the first podcast ever in this series. And I think we're on 140 something now will we'll be this one. But one thing I didn't talk to you about was your background and where you grew up. So where did you grow up, Mike? Where Did you grow up as a skier? I grew up like a lot of our um, customers. I grew up in northern New Jersey in nice. a town called Chester. Yeah. So I was the youngest of six boys and we didn't really ski. You know, you can imagine price wise. Right. My family just weren't skiers. Right. Yeah. And we had a lot of kids. So it wasn't like they were out looking for new things. So I played baseball, basketball, football, kind of anything you could do with like a pair of sneakers and that type of thing. So, yeah. um, yeah, so I didn't grow up skiing. I mean, I, I, I did when I got into high school, I started going on like I joined the the trips, like we'd go out to Mountain Creek. That's kind of when I first started getting going. And I went on a trip with my my cousins up to Magic was the first time I ever skied. So, And what was that like? I mean, what, what did you, what was your mindset like going into it? I mean, what made you want to go? And then what kind of hooked you once you got there? Well, I just love sports in general. And when I heard they were going skiing, that was sort of something I had never done. And I said, wow, that sounds amazing. So, you know, I went with them and you know, my uncle's like, oh, you can borrow my boots. I have an extra pair. And, you know, he had a size nine and I had a size 12. Oh, and I just stuffed my foot in, in him because I didn't want to complain because I knew if I told my parents they didn't fit. Right. You know, they'd be like, oh, you don't need to really go anyway. So I kind of just suffered through. But I do remember, you know, I can't remember if I was dreaming it or not, but I remember it was a huge powder day nice. and I was learning on their mm-hmm. beginner trail. Right. And I remember getting off the lift and it seemed like the ramp on the lift was like a double black diamond. It was so steep. And I remember like not even making it off the, ra- you know, off the ramp. And I can't remember if that's actually true or I'm just yeah. remembering it that way. But like I look at our ramps now and I go, they're so flat. I don't know right. if that was, but I'm pretty sure that probably was true in the old days. They made it yeah. pretty tough on people. <laughs> so it sounds like you spent a lot of time on the ground. I mean, what, what made you love it? Well, I mean, like anybody has skied through powder. I was, you know, once I got the hang of it, it was pretty fun, right? So I had an amazing time and was like, um, so that was my first, I think I did that. And then I ended up starting to go on kind of the high school trips. So, you know, from then on, I when I got to college, I did ski some more. And then I was working in Boston and I would take trips mostly up to New Hampshire, and, you know, before I got into the ski business um, a couple of years later. Where did you ski in college? 
So I went to school in Niagara, which is mm. so we skied and, you know, all the resorts up in that area, like Kissing Bridge mm-hmm. and some of those, Ellicottville, you know, that, yeah. that area. So that was a lot of fun. So you found your way over to Boston. What was your first job in skiing? What actually got you doing this thing you love for a living? Yeah, so I worked at Deloitte in Boston, and one of our clients was the Rosinal Group, Rosinal Dinastar. And the short version is I got a call about going up there to be the CFO of the Dinastar brand. So Dinastar was kind of the Dinastar Lang look, you know, a bunch of the specialty brands. And then Rosinal was kind of just their own brand on their own. So they had, at the time, they had a, both a Rosinal warehouse and a whole sales team and, and Dinastar as well. So I, I went up there my late twenties. Yeah. It was one of those. Um, I had met with the guy who previously was the CFO and he told me about his job and this is like whatever, 25 years ago. And, you know, they had dogs in the office and a keg in the back. And I was like, you know, this is before I was still wearing a suit to work. Right. And this is before Facebook and everybody was doing that stuff. Right. Right. And and I was like, wow, there's companies where you can actually like do that. That sounds pretty awesome. And (laughs) So yeah, Vermont, you know, I had been and I always thought it was a cool place. So it just worked out. So you're up at Dina Star. I mean, how long were you there? And ultimately, how did you land at Kellington? Yeah, so I was there six years and I loved it. It was a lot of fun. But I got actually got recruited to come here for the CFO position at Killington. I was more just like, hey, I haven't really interviewed in a while. Maybe I should just go check it out. And right, right. I don't really want to leave. One of those things. Yeah. That, as my wife says, you know, she shouldn't have fallen for that because... Uh, <laughs> You know, I came and I went for an interview with Alan Wilson, who was the president at the time. And and it's just a lot bigger, right? It was probably three or four times bigger in terms of a company and just different, right? We were in the retail business and Dina started. Here we had retail and food and lodging and, you know, it's a small city. And I just thought from a growth standpoint, it was a lot of cool things to learn. So I ended up making the switch. I came here 2001. I mean, Killington's not for everybody. I mean, what appealed to you about it? Because it is, you know, a little bit like Mountain Creek, as you mentioned earlier. It's, it's, it's a big, busy place. There's a lot of energy. It's it's that East Coast attitude energy. It's And I love it. But some people maybe wouldn't want to be in that kind of environment, just like not everyone wants to live in, say, New York City. So what was it about that energy and that attitude of Killington that appealed to you? Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes it's like the negative of some of the things you say, people take that as like a negative connotation, but it's also, you know, the biggest mountain in the East. It has great skiing, great infrastructure, great lifts, right? I mean, you come here on a midweek day and you're not going to find a better resort, right? Right. This is amazing, right? Mm -hmm. Some of the stuff you're talking about is more of like a Saturday party crowd and whether you want that or not. I mean, for me, I was just more wanting to um, progress in my career. I love being in Vermont. And, you know, I knew there's there's only so many opportunities to kind of move up and stay in the ski business and stay in Vermont. So for me, that just seemed like a great opportunity. So take us back to 2002 here, Mike. What was Killington like then? Because it's the resort is really stable now under Powder Core, but it went through some tumultuous times and that transition to ownership wasn't necessarily so smooth. And there was ASC, as you mentioned. Take us back to 2002. What was the resort like in those days and what was it going through? Yeah, I mean, it was some tough times. I did my due diligence and pro- apparently not enough. <laughs> you know, I knew, you know, they were owned by American Skiing Company and they were having some financial problems. You know, I knew Killington was stable, but the overall structure at American Skiing was they had a lot of 
high leverage debt and they were having a hard time making their payments. And anyway, I got here at Christmas of 2001, literally started like a couple of days before Christmas. And during Christmas week, I was on a call with ASC, uh, all the finance people, and they were talking about whether they could make payroll for the next oh, week. Geez. Wow. <laughs> and I remember thinking, wow, apparently I didn't do enough due diligence. Yeah. <laughs> you know, everyone I talked to had talked about, oh, you know, we're doing better. Things yeah. are going better. And I was like, oh, my God. You know, as anybody who runs a business, if you can't make payroll, you're at about the uh, the absolute bottom of a company, right? Yeah, I and mean, that's right. the first thing you always pay. Yeah. And, right. you know, so that caused a lot of problems because we did make payroll. Uh, mm -hmm. but we didn't pay a whole bunch of other bills, mm. one of which was our our power bill at the time that was Central That's Vermont good. Public Service. Wow. And we missed the power bill. And, you know, to this day, other than payroll, power is our next biggest cost. And wow. I don't know, we owed like seven, eight hundred thousand dollars for the month of December and we didn't make the payment. Oh, wow. And that power company has a lot of leverage over you when <laughs> they can turn your power off. Right. <laughs> yeah. So that part was tough and we ended up going on a payment plan and also it was just a lot of tough things. And, and also we, you know, you like, like a lot of companies, when you go through that, you end up prioritizing who you pay and a lot of small, like local vendors weren't getting paid and it really wasn't our fault because we could only control so much. And anyway, it's just a lot of tough times. And at the same time, because of that, you can imagine the amount of capital they were putting in at the resorts. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it was sort of on a downward spiral. And, you know, on one hand, I say I learned a lot because you go through those times, you learn a lot about business and finance, and good and bad of how to do things. And um, so I, I learned a lot, but it was some it was some really rough times. Yeah, especially as the CFO. I mean, welcome to work when when you're the one who has to decide. Or, or, or at least have those conversations with the power company and everything else. I mean, what kept you there when, when you kind of walked right into that situation? Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things, you know, you, you realize, you know, you literally spend every waking moment about saving money and, you know, it's a really terrible way to run a business because you're never thinking about the guest. You're literally in like survival mode of like, Oh my gosh, we didn't have enough money to pay this or that. Right. And so, yeah, I don't know. I was young and, um, starting to have little kids. And I was like, I don't know. I, I wasn't like thinking of leaving. I was just like, there were definitely some dark days, no doubt. And so, you know, I think that helped frame my thoughts as we, you know, as powder bought us and, you know, we had some tough times in the beginning with powder, but then, you know, we started to finally find our own and that relationship with powder got better and we were able to step back and trying to focus on all the kind of things that, you know, are important at a resort. Talk about the powder transition a little bit, if you will, Mike. I mean, what was challenging about it and how did you finally see eye to eye with them? Well, I think, um, you know, powder's experience when they bought us had been mostly owning Park City Mountain Resort. They bought them, you know, before the Olympics and through the Olympics, it grew really fast and had great growth. And so some of the team there you know, kind of felt like, hey, come just put the same model at Killington. And they couldn't understand certain things we did. Obviously, our cost structure is high on the East Coast with making snow and having a lot of base lodges and, you know, a lot of staff. And, you know, it, it's a little more labor intensive than places out West. So they struggled with that. The early opening, late closing was kind of emblematic of that, right? It wasn't that it really cost a ton of money, but it was kind of like, oh, you're just wasting money doing this stuff. 
So when they wanted to try to make our bottom line better, right, that's a pretty big goal is like, hey, we got to get it more sustainable. We shrunk the season and, you know, we, we tried all sorts of different things. And at that time, I was the CFO still. You know, we tried a lot of different things. Some of it worked. Some of it didn't. Uh, a lot of it didn't work. A lot of it pissed off our customers. And, you know, so for a lot of our guests, you went through the AC years where they just didn't invest and then powder came in and did some you know, with us, you know, the local team implemented it all was um, we tried a whole bunch of different things that a lot of people didn't really love. So you finally got it right. How did the opportunity come up for you to lead Killington, Mike? And after 10 years as CFO, why did that position appeal to you? Yeah, it's interesting. My boss ended up going out to powder to be the COO. And one day he walked into my office and said, hey, I, I just took a job to be the COO of Powder, and you're going to take over Killington. That's how it worked. We actually never really talked about it. And right. I remember thinking to myself, man, I don't even know if I want that job, you know, because it was it was pretty rough at times, you know. Um, our customer base was not overly happy with us and just seemed like at times it even was, would it be worth that job? It seemed like it could be pretty rough. But it was also interesting and a fun challenge. And so I was excited about it as well. Was there a turning point, Mike, a point where Powder finally got it, where you finally managed to make the guests happy enough? And I know there was some lawsuits and things around the lifetime season passes, and there was just a million different factors. But was there a point where you just kind of felt, okay, this is back to what Killington should be. It's stable. Powder gets it. Our customers get it. And I'm happy where I am. Yeah, there were a couple points. I think right after I took over, I remember meeting with my team because it wasn't like I came up with all these ideas on my own. You know, a lot of our team felt like we should be doing some different things, but mm-hmm. we we're sort of under a perceived at that time maybe mandate from powder. And and so, you know, now my the president of Killington was going to be my boss as the COO out of powder. And I said to him, you know, hey, we want to make a bunch of these changes. And a lot of them are complete reversals of things we did six years ago. Right opening early, closing late, mm-hmm. bringing back the Bear Mountain Mogul Challenge, all sorts of different things. And, you know, I said to him, I just want to make sure if I'm going to do this role, I, I need to be able to make changes on things we think are important. He's like, yep. He's like, I got enough other things to worry about. Do what, do what you want. <laughs> it was kind right. of the answer. So, <laughs> so we started kind of like just going back and we started doing a whole bunch of things, you know, with our team and talking through with our team, like, hey, what are the things we could do to improve? Asking our guests. I mean, doing very basic things that we just hadn't done before. You know, I looked at our uh, guest survey results. You know, we were getting like a lot of our results we were getting in the summer after the season was over. And you look through them and it's like, hey, this lift wasn't running or this trail could have been groomed or this and like all these like and it's like from a year ago in December. And I'm thinking, well, it's not very easy to fix that now. So we went on kind of a journey to kind of look through all the comments and read all the things online and and just said, let's start over. Like, right. I mean, I, I always tell people a company is really just a group of people trying to do their best. Right. And I think a lot of times we're doing a lot of the right stuff, but we weren't communicating very well either. And I think that sometimes caused problems. So for instance, example I would use is like, we'd run a lift slow for a period of time, right? The old Snowden lift and online, you know, people would be like posting 
oh, they're trying to save money because they're running that lift slow, right? And, right. and you know, I remember going, like reading that and going to my team going like, do we ever do that? I never even heard. I'm the finance <laughs> guy. I never told anyone to run the lift slow. So right. like, no, we never do that. That's stupid. But like, you know what? If you don't tell people that you don't, they just make up their own. And right. so we have like a, we had a communication vacuum and we felt like we shouldn't talk to our guests of the community and, and that backfired on a whole bunch of, you know, things where our core people, our core pass holders were coming and skiing and then going back online and typing up about like what a bunch of idiots running the resort. Right. And so, you know, we started talking going like, Hey, before we work on anything else, we probably need to start over with these groups and explain what, what our plan is. And, and we're not trying to screw up the resort and we do want your feedback and we agree with you on some of the things we did wrong. And so we mm -hmm. kind of just started that. We did it with our employees as well. Like what are the stupid things we're doing? Tell mm -hmm. us. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and let's be open to, you know, and I would say like, Hey, I was the CFO. Some of those things were things I probably came up with. They're stupid. Mm -hmm. We should change them. <laughs> you know, it, it sounds like at that point, powder step back and let you do, what you wanted. And it sounds like in the early days, you had some micromanagers from Park City trying to manage things. And that's actually, it's interesting because it's the opposite of how I perceive Powder Core today, because they have all these different resorts and they're all run very differently. And, and Snowbird and Bachelor have the late season as Killington does. And Copper is a little bit more of a traditional season. And Boreal is, you know, this big parks area with the Woodward Park out there. And Soda Springs is kind of this little family place. So how would you characterize working with powder core today as compared to them, how have they evolved as a company to kind of step back and just let their resorts be individual resorts? Yeah, I think they learned a lot through they, you know, John who owns the company has kind of stepped out of the operating role, but he always says, you know, we learned a lot of Killington of maybe yeah. some of the things not to do. Right. And so I do think, you know, it's taken some growing pains and, and they've changed some of the, a lot of the teams since back then. And, you know, they've definitely gotten, some people that I would say just get it right. They're good mm -hmm. people, right? They they want to focus on the right things, and they know. And John's always wanted to maintain that the local resort should run should run it, and we shouldn't centralize everything like a lot of the other companies are doing. That he thought you kind of lose the soul of the mountain, and and so I do give him credit for that. That that was really important, and I think now we've gotten kind of a a great team out there. And, you know, I think now they trust us here and, you know, they don't visit that often, which I guess mean is a good thing, right. In terms of, you know, it's logistically a little harder for them to get here. So, you know, they always come for world cup and then, um, but they're not here like questioning things. They don't know when we're, what trail we're making snow on or any of that, right. They leave it to us to do it. And, and to be honest, that makes the job fun for me and the team. Right. I mean, I think all of us, feel like we get to you know make choices every day of what we're doing and we don't have to call somebody to ask if we're allowed yeah maybe they'd be there a little more often if you got 800 and some inches of snow last year like snowbird right <laughs> like, yeah exactly, exactly. spend their time up the canyon so big 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 things on the cusp here at killington and i really i want to talk on the base village here mike i'm so excited about this the east just does not have enough real ski in ski out villages and you're about to build one or start building one at Killington. Break this down for us, Mike, where will the village be? How big will it be? What can you tell us about it? Just give us Killington village 101. Yeah. I mean, the basic is if people know the orientation of the mountain, you have snowshed as you're driving up the main part of the road, you come to snowshed on the left and, and Ram's head on the right. 
that whole area is where the village will be. And basically what, uh, to make a village, you needed kind of one central area. So they needed more s- space on the snowshed side. So the plan is always called for the road moving over to the right as you're driving up the road and basically going where Ramshead lodges. So one of the reasons we've struggled to get it permitted over the years is a whole bunch of reasons we could spend a, a lot of time on it. But, mm-hmm. you know, there's a third party that owns the land and yeah. they've been working on permitting it. Part of the problem is as you move the road to make enough room on the snowshed side, you know, the infrastructure costs to move the road. You got to move the road, the water, the sewer, the power. The cost of that was, you know, over $20 million. So it was always complicated to find developers that wanted to pay for the infrastructure before they knew if they could actually sell any any condo units. So Mm -hmm. that's been one of the big pieces that's been a challenge and a whole bunch of things has ha- have happened, you know, with the town we created, the town created a TIF district, a tax incremental financing, and we don't have to go into the mechanics, but it, it basically allowed the town to borrow money for the infrastructure. And then as the development gets built out, the taxes that come from those new units will go back to the town to be repay the bond that they used to pay uh, for the infrastructure. And the reason why that matters is it's a smart thing that that states, some places have figured out that, you know what, like a place like Killington, we've been trying to do a village for 20 years, but if you can't get the infrastructure, no developer wants to come in. So by letting the town borrow the money and then use tax money, so the state's effectively letting the town use the tax money that would go to the state to pay off the bond. And the goal, the premise of it is the state will never get tax money if they don't help fund this infrastructure. And it's happened. Several towns around Vermont have done it, trying to revitalize like a St. Albans and some others. It's the first time it's been used at a ski resort. So we weren't sure we'd get approved. But, you know, we have a great partnership with the town and we have a new developer called Great Gulf that that is in and uh, things are moving and just a lot of great discussions. So tell us about the village itself once it's built. Yeah. So uh, as I said, we, we kind of, we take down both Ramshead and Snowshed and move the road to the right. But, you know, the village is going to be probably like others you've seen, you know, kind of a nice walkable village. You know, we'll have a base lodge. It's right at Snowshed Pond. You know, the other thing we'll do is make sure that we kind of level. Right now we have multiple lifts in that area on Snowshed side and on the Ramshead side, you know, we'll make sure that that whole area is much better than it is now, right? If you're at like Snowshed and you want to get to Ramshead, you have to go up and down like little inclines the yeah. whole way. Mm-hmm. You have to go under the road and then yeah. push yourself back up the other side of the road. You know, we'll get be able to get rid of all of that. And we call it the snow beach, kind of make one really nice flat spot for traversing. So, you know, I think the goal is obviously we're adding Uh, The first phase is a couple hundred residential units and rebuilding the base lodge. And then, um, you know, but I think making a really nice village, probably similar to what you might see in like Stowe or, you know, obviously some of the models we want to follow or, you know, Whistler or, you know, Tremblant, some of the better villages. And, you know, I think that we have the right partners involved because they get that to have a successful village, it can't just be a bunch of condos, right? It's got to tie in 
and have some excitement and, you know, have events and be set up in a way that, that everybody benefits, right? Not just if you can afford one of the condos in there. I think the, the way it's successful is that anybody at Killington looks down and says, wow, let's go check out the village and go have lunch in there and, and hang out there afterwards and watch a band or this and that. And it kind of adds to the experience and, and doesn't take away from it. So you're really building a little town, a self-contained town where you're going to have retail and restaurants and people living there and hotels. I mean, what's the size of this thing by the number of beds that it could have in the end? That's kind of the village core. There's some single family units that were going up by Ramshead. And then, you know, there's some other spots like up in Snowden where there's some development. I mean, the only phase, phase one's the only one approved so far, but the master development you know, could have upwards of 2000 units. So, uh, you know, but that could be a 20, 20 year build and probably some of that will change over time. So, you know, we're still working on kind of the first phase, trying to lock that down. But I think the good thing from my standpoint is the group we have in now, uh, you know, Michael Snade, who's the person who leads the, who that group, he's a skier, his group is skiers. They kind of, they understand that they need to make sure the skier experience is enhanced and not degraded, right? Where the worry before was when you had non-skiers developing it is all they care about is how much they can sell the condo for. Not really how does it integrate with the rest of the resort. So I think that from that standpoint, we're in a great, great shape. So to what extent are you going for something like Vail Village or you mentioned Tremblant where it's mostly pedestrians and folks just kind of park elsewhere and bring their stuff in? Yes. I mean, the, the problem with the village, the way it was designed and permitted is that you could drive through it. So one of the things that Great Gulf's working on now, uh, we just met with the state to t- to look at not changing the, the the village too much that we need a whole new Act 250 permit, but just enough to take the driving out and make it a walkable village and some other enhancements that we actually think you know, from an environmental standpoint are way better, right? Because if you get rid of roads in the village, now you can add back green space and different areas and things. So uh, we are going to have parking under the village, but they're mm-hmm. all going to be accessed. The plan is to have them be accessed by around the outside of the village. Mm-hmm. So you would uh, still working through some of the details on that. Um, but yeah, most of the park, a lot of the parking gets replaced underneath a lot of the buildings. Well, that's interesting. Do they envision building up? platform above the lots now or, or do you get dig down big make a basic parking structure yeah they're going to have underground under building parking you know for residents in the village as well as there probably there will be you know other parking there as well the mock-up i saw mike i think it had folks driving maybe in a tunnel underneath the village to get up to k1 and Vale parking lots are those parking lots going to remain intact are there changes coming for those yeah, I mean, you know, I think we'll see those are there, you know, there's plan for Vail to have condos eventually in it. And uh, the upper K1 lots are mostly staying intact. Now, those are not permitted. And we're still having a lot of discussions with this group about some of that, because, you know, we want to preserve as much parking as we can up on the mountain. But a lot, you know, some most of the parking in Snowshed and Ram said does become remote parking uh, down below the distillery. Uh, but, you know, we're adding a lot, as I mentioned, underneath the, the village itself. So I think we'll see as the rest builds out, you know, we're having a whole bunch of different discussions with this group that we don't want to just take all the parking. So, you know, I think 
we know where we are in phase one. And I think as we move forward, you know, that's obviously top of mind. How important is it for you, Mike, to make sure that part of this development is employee housing? We're working on some things for employee housing, but there's actually not employee housing in the actual core of the village, right? So we've got four different properties now, uh, over 400 beds for employee housing, I would think much more than any other Eastern resort. But, you know, we're working with the town on a couple of different options of some other properties that are kind of better, a better fit for that. So we're, I think we're close to announcing some things we're working on, but, you know, I think that the challenge for us is like we have employee housing that's more dormitory style, like a hotel type style, right? Two people in a room uh, in some queen beds. And we also need some other more like workforce housing where like a, a, a new family could live or that type of thing that might not want to be in that. So that's, that's what we're focused on. And um, we've identified you know, some properties and, uh, you know, have done some work. So I think we're, we're moving in a good direction there. All right. So thinking about how this village will tie in with the rest of the resort, it looks as though it will land basically right by the Ram's Head and Snowshed lifts. Do you envision those lift configurations staying the same? Do you have some changes in mind? Have you considered a lift from the village up to K1 and Superstar? Yeah. I mean, we're, you know, kind of debating all those things. I think, mm-hmm. As we get the new layout of the village, because they're working with some architects to to kind of update that, mm-hmm. that would be the next phase, right? I think generally the lifts probably would be in somewhat of the same area. When we fully build the village out, though, you know, right now we have what we call Snowshed 3, which if you're looking up the mountain is on the left. You know, that one will need to be upgraded. It's an older lift. We haven't done it yet, partly because we want to make sure we wait and see. We don't want to you know, have to change where the location is later. So, and then we have an old double next to that. That would probably have to turn just a, something more like a six pack. And, you know, maybe you run that over more to right. I mean, right now the top of that gets you off and you just ski over towards superstars. So, you know, we're kind of always debating what the right answer on some of that is, but I think we want to make sure we're not going to do any of it until we understand kind of the topography of the final, the way the village is going to lay out. So another big piece of this, Mike, is going to be they're going to redo Killington Road or redesign Killington Road. Tell us about the reconstruction of Killington Road. What's going to be changing? What's your timeline there? Yeah, so it fits back to the whole TIF discussion where the town takes over. The town actually takes over ownership of the road, right? And that's how they go and bond to remove the road, as I mentioned so we move it. We we um, as you come up the hill, there'll be a, a roundabout. So we're going to add a roundabout before the village, and then you still pretty much will be able to continue up the main road and go up Vale and the, the normal way for a long period of time. That that's not going to change too much. So generally, I'd say that flow is about the same. The other big things that are happening though, with the town taking that over as part of the TIF. You know, they're also fixing the bottom of the road. There's a really steep entry into the resort from Route mm-hmm. 4. Yeah. So um, the plan is next summer to take a lot of that grade out. So mm, that'll, nice. that'll make that bottom part of the road much more functional. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, the other thing, the village has always contemplated a water source coming from all the way at the bottom of Route 4, all the way down, not that far from Skyship. And they've always, they've permitted a pipeline up into the village. The other thing that's happening in Killington is 
we're having a lot of PFAS issues up and down the road. And so it seems like every year, another business or two are testing positive for that. And they're all having to put in private filtration systems. And so with the town taking over the road, they're also taking over this water project, which is originally was meant to bring water to the village, but now it's going to have a dual purpose. It's going to go up to the village and then loop back down the Killington Road and provide uh, public water to all the businesses and people off of the Killington Road. Is there a mass transit component to this, Mike, some way? Because right now, if you're at Killington, in under most circumstances, if you want to go out, you have to drive. And I'd imagine the village will be really nice because people will stay there. So I'm, I'm curious if there's an effort to better tie the village into these other businesses. Just, I mean, if for no other reason to make sure they continue to get business because once people can walk from their hotel to a restaurant, maybe they don't want to go down to the wobbly barn if they have to drive. Right. No, we're cognizant of that. I think part of the whole uh, project we were just talking about is there's also another component, the whole redo of the Killington Road. I talked about the very bottom of the road, fixing that. The other thing it's contemplated is to have bus pull-offs and bus stops in front of different businesses where now it's just not very functional. The bus stops in the middle of the road. People have to drive around it. There's been some different studies trying to figure out how to optimize that. So that's, that is part of this whole project that that'll be happening alongside that. And then, so, you know, we have, we have a bus system uh, that brings people all the way from Rutland up here and back. And I think as, as we have the village, you know, we'll obviously tie that in even more. So what's your timeline here, Mike, optimistically? When could we be breaking ground and how long would it take for this thing to come online? I think, you know, uh, some pieces are going to start next summer. I mean, we're starting a lot of the work starting now, but then we had some flooding and that pushed some things off. But, you know, the the road work, some of that bottom of the road should happen next summer. A lot of the water, the water line work should happen. You know, I think our remote parking will start to get built potentially next summer. So I think people are going to start to see some of that. And then, you know, I think um, this group is going to move pretty quickly. They've got a lot of resources and uh, they think the next summer there'll be a substantial work done and they'll be selling units, you know, not very distant future. Really, really exciting time for Killington, Mike, and I uh, can't wait for that to come online. Let's shift up the mountain and talk about your lift fleet here at Killington for a minute. I just saw Copper's building another six pack and they've gotten lots of new lifts in the last few years. As you look yeah. around Killington, you got a lot of old hardware. What's your wish list, Mike? What would you like to see upgraded at Killington? Yeah, I mean, we've done a bunch of the ones we really needed to, right? We put in Northridge, we moved Southridge back and got a lift there. We got the, you know, the latest is the bubble uh, six pack over on Snowden. You know, I think the next priority, Ram's Head's pretty high on the list. Superstar and and Snowshed are both pretty old lifts. So we need to replace those. Probably next, you know, Superstar potentially uh, could be the next lift just because of the amount of time it runs. When you look at age in terms of time and now, now obviously even Snowshed with running mountain biking you know, we're getting a lot more hours on those. So, you know, that's pretty much what we're looking at. I think those three, Ramshead, Snowshed, Superstar, I think with some of the changes coming in the village, we'll have to see what the order of those are. And then we've had some discussions about, you know, should we be moving more to six packs? And I think you'll probably see us moving more, some of those lifts to six packs going forward. And are you looking at any of the D-line technology that's out there? Or are you just looking at your standard six-pack? And, and do you like the bubbles that you put on Snowden? Would you want to have bubbles on any six-packs? 
I mean, we're looking at D line. They're you know they're a lot more expensive. So uh, you know for us, um, I'm not sure we'd probably stick with the main technology. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of bubbles, uh, you know it depends who you ask, right? If you ask lift maintenance and the ops group, they'd be like, oh, bubbles. I hate bubbles. But <laughs> anybody who rides them loves them, right? Oh so, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think we'd put them in the places that make sense, right? We if we redid. Superstar, you wouldn't put a bubble on because that type of skier, it's a fast lift. Uh, you don't, they don't particularly need it. Ram's head, snow shed, some of those where it's the lower end and, you know, you'd maybe contemplate, it, especially Ram's head where a lot of times the wind's blowing down the lift line. So it feels like it's the coldest lift ever. So that's, those are the type of lifts where you feel like you can have the biggest impact with a, with a bubble. What do you think of the eight packs that Boyne's been putting in? They put one at Sunday River. They put one at Loon right there in your neighborhood. Have you looked at eight packs at all? I can't say I've spent a lot of time. I, I can't say I, ha- I know enough about them. I think we're, as a company, moving more to six packs. I look at you know the way we load six packs and the bubble and the complexity of loading six. I can't mm-hmm. even imagine trying to get eight going. <laughs> I just don't know here where we need an eight it adds other complexity for width and other things like if you look at superstar as we've talked about that lift you're even adding a six pack you're making the chairs wider then you sometimes need to change where the snow making is because it's now under a lift when it wasn't before and trees and then we have you know you also don't want to mess with that we have some tree cover that helps us with wind so there's just a lot of complexity there i'm not i don't know enough to be honest of like what the exact reason they've moved to eight packs are, but you know, down the road, I would bet maybe out of the village, that would be the right type of thing, right? Where you really need to move a lot of people quickly. That could make some sense. Last lift I want to ask you about at Killington is the Bear Mountain Quad. This is a 1979 fixed grip quad. Any notion of going to a high speed over there or, or, or just maybe a new lift? Yeah, I don't think that'll ever be a high speed. I mean, mm-hmm. we look at it as the uh, the other lift there, Sky Peak Quad, pretty much services the same terrain other than the very top of outer limits, right? So some of the bump crowd, you know, doesn't love that we don't have that lift, you know, Bear Mountain Quad running every day, right? We run that Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you know, for a lift that you run three days a week. Uh, it, it's hard to, ju- it would be hard to justify a detachable and even hard to justify a new lift. So I think, you know, a lot of these lifts, if you maintain them right and fix the drive and the haul rope and all the other things, they can last a long time. And so the, to be honest, it's not that high on the list, but I think after, if we get the other ones done, it'll, you know, it would move up. How about the Snowden triple? That's a pretty long lift. It's a 1973 Heron Poma triple. Any, uh, any ambitions there to upgrade that one? Yeah, there's a lot of debate about that. You know, um, we've had a lot of internal discussions. It's also used by like KMS and the ski club a lot for training on Highline. They built a, a mid station off of that. And, um, you know, we go back and forth because we, they built a mid station, but then we put a bubble chair on next door. Yeah. And a lot of the kids just scared over there because it's almost pretty much the same distance and it's a much nicer ride. So people aren't using it as much. So then we get into really its function now is mostly a backup lift on biz on like midweek days. And on busy days, we run it just for extra capacity, but you know, it's always, honestly, that one's a struggle 
if we would replace that or not, or can we just handle the capacity or, or move it around to different lifts? But yeah, we debate that a lot. And when you talk about replacing it, do you think high-speed quad? Do you think fixed quad? What, what do you talk about? I think it'd probably be a fixed quad. I, you know, I think we can handle so much capacity with, with the other lifts around. I mean, if if you look at the other lifts out of the base, you know, if Superstar eventually becomes a six-pack and Snowden's already a six-pack, I'm not sure we would need a high-speed lift there. All right. How about Pico? I mean, from what you you told me earlier, I gather there is just not the capital to replace lifts at Pico. But looking long-term, what's your assessment of Pico's lift fleet? What, what is your wish list if you could make upgrades over there? Yeah. I mean, I, I think as we talked before, Right. I mean, two high speed lifts for a resort that size are pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, there could be a point where we have to. There's nothing else we can do. We have to. I think for us, maintaining that that lift infrastructure is pretty much the most important for us. But I think, you know, we're focused on snowmaking. I think after that, the next one's probably outpost is always a debate. The problem we have is there is it's another lift we don't use very much. So can you spend, you know, the even cheap lifts are so expensive that it's sometimes hard to figure out what the right answer is. So, um, you know, we've spent a bunch of time coming up with different options there, right? Do you ever go back to a surface lift or some of those, you know, or some of the more inexpensive fixed grips? So it'd probably be outpost definitely before we put in a new uh, high speed over a Pico. Yeah, that that outpost is, uh, according to LiftBlog, is a 1969 Carlevaro Savio double chair. I mean, how hard is it getting to find parts for that thing? Yeah, we've still been able to. And, you know, I think the biggest thing is it looks older for people. Like, mm-hmm. you know, psychologically, yeah. it looks old. And so we've had definitely, you know, we have to get all our lifts certified by engineers and every year, and we're still able to do that. So, yes, we've had a lot of discussions about that. But, you know, it's, it's like anything. If you spend five or six million on a new lift there, you know, is that better than spending, you know, we're spending probably five or six million on snowmaking upgrades to start. So, you know, I would argue... We need the snowmaking more than we need that lift that only runs two days a week, right? And uh, and you can access the terrain off the other. Most We've cut some trails off of uh, Golden to get you over there. And so on days when we're not running that lift, people can still ski over to that pod and, and take some runs. So I do have to ask you about the interconnect. And when we last spoke four years ago, you said it was not a priority for you. And I imagine your main priority for the next several years is going to be the base village at Killington. But is that still the case? Is the, is the Pico interconnect with Killington still a low priority for you for Powder Core? I mean, for me personally, I think it is. I think also within Powder, probably because I haven't been pushing it. Mm-hmm. You know, I just look practically, you know, we just talked through four or five lifts you know, across both resorts and you start thinking of where to spend money, you need multiple lifts to try to interconnect the two. Then you have to debate, is it adding a ton more skiing or is it just connecting people back and forth? And, you know, I look at like Sugarbush and their, their lift connecting the two mountains. It doesn't get a lot of use. And so, you know, I look and say, we still have the option to do those things. We have to see how the village builds out. And maybe, you know, as we, move forward, we'll see if that changes. But, you know, I also always say like every room I'm in, I say, should we do the Pico interconnect? Half the room says yes and half says absolutely no. <laughs> so it's not like everyone's overwhelmingly for it. And right. so, you know, our focus here has been snowmaking, you know, lift infrastructure and some base lodge infrastructure. And I think we're going to continue with that. And we have a lot of work to still do on, on a lot of that before we can get to the interconnect. 
All right, Mike, let's talk about Fast Tracks. You've gone through two seasons, and it seems like this is here to stay. So Powder Core introduced this for 21-22 ski season at Killington, Copper, Snowbird, and Bachelor. And they've been tweaking the program. Let me just ask from your point of view, two seasons in, how is Fast Tracks working out for Killington in particular? I think overall it's working fine. I think if you asked our guests, like, you know, I go online and read the different ski blogs of people's, you know, the, the local Killington zone and some of that and get people's feedback. And my general sense talking to people is I know, understand a lot of people. Some people don't care. Some mm-hmm. are just offended at the concept. Right. Yep. But most, you know, most, a lot of businesses have it. And I think most people are like, if it doesn't really impact me, I don't particularly care other than when they're online, they're complaining about it. And I would say, you know, when I ask people, most people are like, I don't even know why you have it. It seems like there's never been anybody in the line. Right. That's what I hear all the time. Yeah. Right. So my answer to that is, well, you know what? We actually do okay with it. We actually make some money and it's all basically all profit. And that allows us to reinvest in the resort. So I go at some point, every place needs to figure out how to make enough to kind of keep reinvesting. And if, and if I can, raise a price on a certain small group that doesn't impact everyone else. And it really didn't, didn't really matter to me. That's like a, that's a perfect revenue stream, right? Yeah. Or I could just raise your season pass more. And I think most yeah. of them, even the ones who complain about it say, well, there's really no one in there. It's like not even worth it. My point is, yeah, we said we weren't going to overcrowd it and we're not, but we are making enough off of it that it's meaningful to us. So I look at it, it actually is kind of working exactly as planned. And I know people were very worried that it wouldn't work like that. How small is that group, Mike? Is it 2% of skiers on a given day? I mean, how have you been able to, like, how do you measure that? What can you share with us metrics wise? Uh, yeah, it's, it's small. It's less mm-hmm. than that. You know, wow. it's, okay. it's a couple hundred on a day, typically, mm-hmm. you know, hundreds. So, yeah, I mean, I think I look at that and go, you know, you could either say it didn't do great or it did well enough that it's, you know, if incrementally it, it, it helps us. I look at it that way, right. It helps us generate some bottom line, finding certain people that are willing to pay for that. So this has been a pay per day product. I think this is the first year you're offering it as a season pass at Killington for $799 as a season pass add on. Is this the first season and how has that product been received so far? Yeah, it is the first season. And for the same exact premise, we said, hey, there's probably a certain amount of people. I mean, at any given price point, everyone would want to pay, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so we priced it high to not sell too many, right? And that's been the Mm -hmm. goal. And I think we're, we're, you know, we're selling about probably what we thought we'd do. We, if anything, we priced it high enough that we wouldn't sell too many. We were, our biggest worry was that, you know, we would end up filling the lines too much and that would cause all sorts of other problems. So, um, you know, I'm pretty happy with where we're at on that. So there's a lot of ways to get on the hill these days. Your premium product is the Beast 365 Pass. And last time we spoke, this was relatively new. And one of the really great benefits that you've added on since then, I thought, was the Icon Base Pass. Just talk about the Beast 365, which is, it basically gives you access to everything Killington does. So summer, winter, all year long for listeners who may not be familiar with the product. Talk about the evolution there and how happy you are with that product as it is now. Yeah. So when I probably, when we first started talking, you know, we were starting to expand and invest in mountain biking and trying to become a year round resort. And as we had some traction there, 
and we're starting to sell a decent amount of mountain bike passes. We finally came up with the idea. Why don't we just sell one pass like a subscription, like to Netflix, you pay per month and you get everything we get. So you get to ski, you get to mountain bike, you get to golf, you get to use the adventure center or the gondola, anything we have. So we rolled that out. And, uh, you know, in the beginning, you know, the first year was probably mostly people who mountain biked and skied, but we also were trying to use that as a tool to try to get people into the other sports. So trying to get skiers into mountain biking and those types of things. And so, yeah, we've seen uh, really great growth every year since we implemented it. And again, this year we're seeing great growth. And and as you mentioned, a, bun- a couple of years ago, Icon made it available to add a base pass to certain products. And there's some requirements of what you need to do at a resort to be able to do that. And we chose to only add that product to our B365 because our whole goal has been you know, for the resort to become year round and, and that's good for the community and having businesses open year round. We want our winter guests to come back in the summer. And so that's been the goal and um, we've done really well. And, you know, I forget how many we talked about the first year, we probably sold 700 beast passes and uh, beast 365. And this last year, I think last year we sold 3,300 and this year we're, you know, up another 10% over that. So it continues to scale. Really, our our whole strategy is to kind of get everybody to buy that. So overall, season passes have been doing really well for us. Yeah, that Icon Base Pass add-on is terrific. And I was talking to Chip Siemens, president at Window Mountain, which also offers that option. And one thing he told me is that he's getting been getting a little pushback from his pass holders as Altera has taken mountains off the Icon Base Pass. So Jackson, Aspen, Alta, Deer Valley, Taos, Snow Basin, Sun Valley, you now can't access those on the icon base. Have you heard anything like that from your pass holders where they wish they could upgrade to a full icon? Oh yeah. Hear it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you know, unfortunately, you know, that we have certain rules with that, right. That we, mm-hmm. that's not, it's not like I, t- it's not my choice. Right? right. So I don't, really don't have the option. You know, I think we've had some discussions. Maybe there's another option where there's some version of an upgrade. That's a, a premium to get to those products, but we haven't been able to get icon to want to do that yet, but there's demand. I hear it all the time. And, I, you know, all I can say is it's not really, you know, when you're a partner in some of these, you don't always get to make a choice where, you, you know, you kind of have to do what you can do. So I think it's still a great benefit for most people. And obviously people are finding a ton of value and, and just our, even our year round pass, right? You, you uh, don't have to golf or, or mountain bike very often to make our year round pass make sense, or even just ski at another Eastern resort on your icon, let alone you know, the, obviously the one, people who are really into skiing and are going to go west and want to go to one of those premium resorts, I get why they want, you know, why they want that. And, uh, you know, we're going to keep working on it and see if we can make something happen with that. Nice. Last quick question for you here today, Mike. Any chance we could get a separate allotment of Icon Pass days for Pico instead of having Killington and Pico join? Well, if you can figure that out for me, I would really appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> Have you I asked? Would love that as well. Yeah, I mean, we've, you know, I think that's um, kind of as we signed the deal originally, they were willing to add Pike. I think the answer is, you know, the premise of the of that pass in the beginning was, you know, it was iconic resorts, right? They only really, and, and so they wanted Killington, not particularly wanting Pico. And I think we then worked with them to allow Pico, but it's within the allotment, right? So in a perfect world, we would get both. I would love if we could figure that out, but we haven't been able to figure that out yet. 
All right, Mike, with that, I will let you go. I cannot thank you enough for your time. I wish you another tremendous season at the Beast, hopefully another really long one. You're doing a great job up there. Keep it up. Appreciate you. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. That's Mike Salamano, president and general manager of Killington and Pike Overmont. Mike, you crushed it, as always. Thank you so much for that. Quick personal note on the podcast. Longtime listeners may remember that Mike was also my first ever guest on the Storm Skiing Podcast when I launched this thing almost four years ago. I cannot tell you how huge that was for me, that I was able to debut this brand, which at the time was completely unknown and solely focused on the Northeast, with a conversation with the head of the largest ski resort in the region. Frankly, I can never thank Mike enough for responding to the cold email that I sent him, asking if he'd come on a podcast with a guy that had no samples to point to and that no one had ever heard of. So thank you again for helping me launch this thing, Mike, and for making time for me again for this episode. I appreciate the relationship and everything that you do to keep Killington and Pico among the very best ski areas in New England. Thank you all very much for listening. I hope that you're fired up to have the storm back for the fall. I enjoyed my summer break, but man, I am pumped to get back to you with this stacked lineup. Check out who's scheduled to join me over the next several weeks. The leaders of Keystone, Snowbird, Great Bear, South Dakota, North Star, Cascade, Wisconsin, Cranmore, Park City, Schweitzer, Lutzen, Atatash, Snow River, Michigan, Mount Rose, and where the biggest lift project this year is happening right now, Big Sky, Montana. Man, I am fired up. And if you are too, you know the very best way to get those episodes the moment they are live. Pop over to stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. New pods appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter, and paid subscribers do receive podcasts seven days, that's new, was three days, seven days before everyone else. You can also follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Stormski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.